Welcome to Shift, the podcast designed to inform and educate you about weight loss. In each episode, I will interview an expert in weight loss, from doctors to dietitians, as well as people who have experienced successful and long-term weight loss themselves. It is our goal to help all our listeners get the real facts and latest knowledge on how to lose weight effectively and sustainably, plus some inspiring stories to help motivate you to start now. I look forward to joining you on the journey. Hi there and welcome to Shift It. I'm so glad you could join me for today's episode. My name is Glenis Winnett, CEO and founder, and today I'm excited to be talking to Sally-Ann Livick, a senior accredited practicing dietitian with over 30 years experience as a clinical dietitian who is based on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. Away from work, Sally-Ann can be found at either the beach, local produce markets or cooking up a storm for family and friends. We will be talking about Sally-Ann's work in bariatric dietetics, focusing on pre and post-op nutrition. So without further ado, I would like to welcome Sally-Ann to our podcast. Welcome, Sally-Ann. Thank you, Glynis. Um, to start with, Sally-Ann, can you tell the listeners a bit more about yourself and what you do specifically? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, I'm a, a, a dietitian. Um, I work both in private practice and in a clinical setting, and I've been practicing for quite a few number of years now. And I see clients for a whole range of reasons. Bariatric um, nutrition, something I became interested in well over 20 years ago now, and I'm still working with the same surgeon. And I work with a couple of other surgeons uh, as well. And it's just a, an amazing, rewarding area. Um, love working with bariatric teams and bariatric clients. Fantastic. As well as educating your clients, I understand that you're also involved in teaching students as the manager of the teaching clinic in the nutrition and dietetics faculty at Sunshine Coast Uni. No longer. That's still I the was. case? No? No, <laughs> I'm not there anymore. I, I loved that role and I was there for six years and it was just fabulous. I loved uh, teaching students. Um, they, they'd come to me for their clinical placement. And, and again, it was an area of passion. I'm, my practice got a little bit busy, so I'm, I'm no longer in that position, but I still um, see lots of those clients and I'm, I mentor uh, some of the students and I'm, I'm, I mentor um, new grad APDs as well. So I'm still involved with teaching and mentoring in, the, in that perspective. Fantastic. I'd like to start with what inspired you to get into bariatrics in the first place. How did you fall into that position? Yeah, bariatrics was uh, was one of those things um, way back when I was a consultant at one of the private hospitals and one of the surgeons decided that uh, he'd like to get interested in bariatrics. And, and as his journey started, he asked me, would I like to be, become his dietitian? So that was a big learning curve for me. Um, bariatrics was relatively new in those times. And we basically um, learned ourselves together and 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 uh, that, that journey continues. We started uh, liaising with other um, bariatric surgeons and dietitians and were really uh, enjoyed the ANSMOS meetings, still do. Um, and it, it's, it's a very interesting journey. It's completely um, evolving still and changing over the time. Um, and, and again, it's, it's an area that I just feel really passionate about. I'm very fortunate to work in that area. Fantastic. That, that's um, Dr. Ian Baxter. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, 
What do you find is your biggest challenge that you face in your line of work? So I guess the challenge is, is if you look broadly at nutrition and dietetics, it's such an ever-evolving science. It's, it's changing all the time. We're finding new research. There's new studies. There's new clinical trials. So the, the field of nutrition and dietetics and even bariatrics is, is ever-growing. So it's just keeping on top of all the latest um, I mean, the example I was thinking about is if you look at the gut microbiome, we understand now that that's one of the key components to, to health and well-being and mental health as well. Um, so there's lots of research um, around the importance of supporting and looking after your biome. Well, that's when I first started dietetics that we weren't even aware of, or there certainly wasn't a lot of research into mm. the microbiome. So the field is is changing and it's just a matter of trying to keep on top of everything, keep yourself up to date so that you can present to your clients the, the, the latest clinical evidence um, and scientific findings and, and practice at a, at a high level. I, I really want to discuss the area of weight loss in more detail for the listeners. Uh, why do you feel that it is that people struggle to lose weight? Why is it so hard? Yeah, I think it's multifactorial. I mean, there's lots, um, if you think, if we break it down, there's probably three key factors that, that I would think, and this is a big, a big um, summary, um, but we, we do live in an IT world. We live in a world of less movement and less exercise. And I think that the, the sedentary nature of a lot of people's um, work and, and sometimes social events carries over and, and we're just not moving enough people don't exercise um, as much as perhaps the, the parents or grandparents used to and, and that lack of movement lack of exercise I think plays a, a key role in 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 weight management um, the other thing is that we're all time poor you know COVID and everyone working from home I think it was extraordinary to see the number of people who embarked on exercise programs or who were out walking and starting to exercise just because they had more time um, I've got clients who commute from the Sunshine Coast to Brisbane and, and that's it, depending on traffic, can be a, a one, one and a half hour commute each way. So there's very little time in, in the day for exercise or they might be busy ferrying children to and from activities. So time poor again means that as well as not having time for exercise, food prep and planning and cooking all become rushed and hurried and, and, and convenience foods and processed foods are, are creeping into the diet more so as well. Mm. Um, and then the last element is that there is a genetic component. If you think about metabolism and shape and size, um, there's definitely a link um, between families. Um, those uh, Some are more predisposed to, to living in a bigger body and, and being a bigger size and struggle more with weight loss. Do you think the uh, availability of processed foods like is compared to, say, 30 years ago has made an impact yeah, too? Absolutely. I mean, you know, 30% of the average Australian's intake is coming from, from processed foods, um, more so for some, less for others. But, yes, and so with those processed foods become high sugar, high fat content, so the energy density is very high. Um, nutrition's quite poor in a lot of them. Um, so absolutely, if you, I think if we, I try to encourage clients to, to follow a Mediterranean style diet where they're looking at quality food, simply prepared and really just keep the, the, the meals as simple as you can um, and, and try to limit processed foods to perhaps an occasional choice, not an everyday choice. So what, what's 
patients get into this habit of processed foods, trying to break that or and lead that sort of healthier lifestyle must be very difficult. Yeah, it is hard. Um, it's hard to encourage people to take time to shop and cook and meal plan. And I think that's one of the areas that is most important um, after bariatric surgery that meal prep and planning um, begin to occur because it's very difficult to grab foods on the run. Mm. Um, and and that's an in, that's an investment in 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 positive outcomes post surgery. But even for clients who are not having bariatric surgery, meal prep and planning is one of the key components to to being healthy and managing your weight. Mm, exactly. And what do you find is it in your opinion is bariatric surgery the only option or the last option for some patients? I don't know if it's the only option, but for mm. some patients who are really large. The tool that bariatric surgery provides to give them a kickstart, lose a significant amount of weight, mm. 30 kilos in, in the first six months, really is one of the factors that helps them move forward. It's very mm. difficult if you are a person living in a larger body to be able to kickstart that exercise plan, to be able to um, have the energy to to put in place all the things that that tool that bariatric surgery is gives an opportunity. Um, so it, it is a wonderful tool and it does provide that, that starting point so that then they can go on and make changes um, to their, their food choices and their, their movement program so that those changes then facilitate ongoing weight management. Um, so I think for some, probably it is perhaps the best option. Um, and, and, and for many, they say, I would have done it years ago. It is the, definitely the best thing that I have ever done. So it, it really serves a purpose to, to get people on that weight loss journey. I think what's important here, what I picked up from that information, is that you're stressing the fact that bariatric surgery is a tool and it uh, is not the actual the only solution and it has to be used in conjunction with a change in lifestyle absolutely so I, I say to all my clients that bariatric surgery is a tool and it will give you a really good kickstart for perhaps two or three years mm. um, and after that two or three year period the main mechanisms of action which is volume restriction and hormonal changes can start to fade. It's very individual. Some people find that they're really volume restricted for, for quite some time. Some people find the volume restriction eases a little bit. But those two key mechanisms do tend to generally fade at around the two or three year period. So what's important leading up to that time is that habits and behaviours are established that then can facilitate that weight loss ongoing. Mm, definitely definitely i'd like you to tell in more detail to the listeners how important the patient's pre-surgery nutrition health assessment is yeah. i suppose coming into it they think they're just going to see the surgeon and get operated on straight away but that's not the case is it no it really um, serves many purposes that pre-surgery assessment uh, probably most importantly i think it's a it's a good screening tool so we have to make sure that if we're taking someone through surgery and cutting out half their stomach or bypassing a part of the intestine with a bypass, that that person is not going to, that we're not setting them up to struggle afterwards. Mm. So I guess one of the, the most important areas that we'd screen for is eating disorders, um, anorexia um, particularly, um, and we'd be looking at 
carefully encouraging patients to perhaps look at other alternatives if they if they had been someone with a eating disorder that precluded them from bariatric surgery. Um, for those that um, are perhaps not precluded but may struggle, then we would work with them beforehand. Um, so the psychologist and, and myself would work as a team with these clients and, and, and the time that we work is completely independent but um, for each individual, but we would certainly look at supporting them to, to be able to be in the best place moving forward for the surgery to really work. So, so the screening's really important. Um, the other screening that's really important, of course, is for um, micronutrient deficiencies. Um, we know that there is a risk of, of deficiencies happening post-surgery, less so for those who take their vitamins, but those risks are still there. So it is important, and again, particularly for those going on for malabsorptive procedures like bypass, that we look at blood and, and certainly um, correct any deficiencies going into pre-surgery. So what is important is that screening and assessment is done at a good time before surgery, not mm. just patients coming in and expecting to have their surgery in the next week or month. It really does need to be a good couple of months, you know, three to six ideally pre-surgeries to, to give us time to support them to, to be in the best place for success. Mm. I just want to go back a few steps. Um, you touched on patients appearing for bariatric surgery with anorexia. I think a few people would be confused at how a patient could have anorexia and be requiring bariatric surgery. Yeah, um, what, what sometimes can happen with eating disorders is they change in nature over the period of years. So it's, it's not uncommon for patients who have a history of anorexia and restrictive eating to go on to develop bulimia or binge eating. And so if someone has that history, we would strongly be, be looking at each case individual and we'd certainly be speaking to psychologists and psychiatrists, but generally it's not recommended that patients with a history of anorexia go on to bariatric surgery. And again, it's very individual, but that's the general recommendation. I think uh, patients might underestimate how important dealing with those micronutrient deficiencies preoperatively to making sure they're in the best health before they go into the surgery and that way you're not, you're on the front foot before you get before you have your operation and then have to deal with other deficiencies post that surgery brings about post-surgery that's true so we look at we look at iron can be up to 45 percent deficiency pre-surgery wow. mm -hmm. um, b12 up to 20 percent vitamin d anywhere from 60 to 80%. So these are pre-surgery deficiencies. And, and most clients do struggle taking their vitamins post-surgery. It is something that's absolutely vital that they take a bariatric vitamin for the rest of their life, as well as a calcium supplement. And, and invariably, patients do find a, a difficult routine to establish. If then when we check the bloods, they're they're low, they might be taking five or six different vitamins mm. just to um, compensate for those that are low. So it's really important that we get them um, into a, a good healthy range pre-surgery. I'd also like to hear from you about how you come to decide which pre-op food plan to recommend to your patients, you know, whole food, formulated VLCDs. What do you find? Is it an individual approach? 
Yeah, I like to use an individual approach. Some patients have had experiences in the past where they may have used a, a shake program that hasn't worked for them or they've been on a very restrictive shake program. So it's about chatting them through their past experiences, um, what's worked for them, what they suits their lifestyle, um, and then formulating a plan that, that suits their needs. Um, Remembering also that they're going to be hopefully using these shakes for a period of time after the surgery. So it's really important that they don't become sick of them or adverse to them pre because post they're very, very important. The VLED shakes are ideal because they're, you know, if they're used well, then they provide protein and um, micronutrients and certainly the formulate being the highest protein. Um, VLED provides very well for, for protein needs. I tend to use a two-shake plan with a low-carb meal. Um, that just allows for socialisation. It allows for joining in family meals. Um, it allows people to still have something to chew because at perhaps week four after surgery when they've had fluid and pureed stage, they're really looking at things to chew. So if you start putting them on a liquid diet too far before surgery, that uh, needing to chew is, is enhanced. Um, so I find ideally that's what I like to do. But if a patient has aversion for some reason to shakes or um, really feels very strongly that they want to use food, we can formulate a plan around food. But the micronutrients in the shakes are fabulous, it's like taking a big vitamin pill. So it's ideal to use some of the shakes as well. Yeah. And do you often, are there many patients who are shake averse and you have to put them on a whole food plan, pre-operative? Not, not so many, although there's, there's a wider variety of shakes, and I think the, the mm. formulations have changed over time as well. Mm. Um, you know, these, these are clients who've struggled with weight most of their life, and, and, you know, they may have used shakes many, many years ago, mm. and they were all in those days quite sweet um, and really not as, as, as taste appropriate as, as the shakes that we see now. So, you know, it's important that they have a try. I always get them to sample a couple and, um, and see how they, you know, they manage those shakes. And, again, it's tips and ideas on how to best use them, um, you know, important about blending them up and adding, adding various flavours and tastes to the okay. shakes if they need. How, how important is protein intake post-op? I'd like to... Yeah, it's really important. Protein is, um, you know, an essential component. It's really you know, all of our muscles in our body. And let's not forget that the, the organs in our body are, uh, are based around muscles too. So hearts and lungs and gastrointestinal tract all um, a protein base. So we need protein to meet the, the needs of all of our organs. Protein is also important because it helps regulate your, your metabolic rate. Well, that's the rate that you burn calories at. Um, it also helps, of course, maintain muscle mass, which is uh, related to your metabolic rate. And also it's the thermogenic effect of food. So what that means is that when you're digesting food, it actually requires calories and protein requires, has quite a, a good thermogenic effect. So multifactorial, but um, absolutely vital. I think I also need to add though, but vital, but not at the um, expense of other nutrition. We do see lots and lots of articles and lots of work around the importance of protein. But I think that that fiber and, and whole grains and essential fats also need to be considered. So it is important that we look at the diet holistically and, and not just focus on protein. It's a bit of a balance. I would love to hear more from you on the importance of good nutrition 
in recovery post-op with regards to wound care? Because I know you have a special interest in this area. Yeah, wound care is really important. Um, if you think about um, the, the surgery itself, I mean, it's laparoscopic, so the little surface wounds aren't much, but there's there's quite a, a, a decent-sized wound internally. And certainly if you're using a surgery that has um, two anastomosis, like a root Y, then that's even more. Um, proteins are really important um, for healing. Um, so is um, iron, so is zinc. Um, funnily enough, these are the same nutrients that are related to hair loss as well. So those three are the, the big ones. Vitamin C, really important as well. Um, and, and, and so is energy. I mean, if clients aren't eating enough, they're not meeting their energy requirements, then the body doesn't have surplus to, to heal. So all those four, energy, protein, iron, zinc, or it's five, and vitamin C, all vital post-surgery. It's a common thing I've heard is that some patients complain about hair loss post-op. So it's interesting to see that's all revolves around their nutrition. Absolutely. Something hair loss is hair loss is a is a big mm. a big concern for, for lots um, post-surgery. And it and it is something that um, will happen. It's inevitable after a um, trauma such as surgery or rapid weight loss that that hair goes into the more dormant phase. Um, and, and hair loss tends to be a little bit greater than hair growth. And, and that happens between the three and six month mark usually. Um, so, so important to have um, those five key nutrients, enough energy, protein, um, iron and zinc at that time to support um, hair regrowth again. As well as hair loss, is it, what other changes do you see in patients? I've heard comments about changes to taste buds, the taste of food. Yeah, that's very common. With the hormonal changes um, in gut hormones that the surgery precipitates also comes changes in taste. So clients talk about developing a very sweet taste. Foods taste very sweet, which is wonderful for those who had a bit of a sweet craving before because it really helps them not crave and seek out those sweeter foods. The other thing that happens is because we've had them on a pre-surgery diet, and if you think about you know, up until about four weeks or six weeks after surgery, they're on an altered diet where really they're just using very small amounts of home-cooked meals and, and, and no room for processed foods. But the palate is cleansed, so very receptive to, to fatty foods and, and salty foods. So the, the hormonal changes affect the sweet taste, but that period of altered eating when we're reverting back up towards that full diet at around week seven or eight cleanses the palate as well so people do notice um, foods tasting saltier tasting fattier and tend to have you know not crave those sorts of foods like they may have pre-surgery very interesting uh, what, what are the common myths around bariatric surgery with regards to nutrition needing that you hear yeah i think i think bariatric clients are very aware that this is um, not an easy way out. It certainly is is a tool, and there's a lot of hard work. So, mm. from a non from a patient or a client who hasn't undergone surgery, one of the myths might be, "Oh, that's great. We'll have surgery and and won't be hungry and don't need to eat much." Well, as we all know, it's extraordinarily more complex than that, and it is a lot of hard work in that first, you know, two to two weeks to six months. So that's a, a big one. A, 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 non-understanding of what's actually involved. I think the other thing is hydration is always an issue. People mm. struggle to get their fluid in. So that's a that's a big job as well in those first couple of weeks. And it's 
it's important that we support clients to learn how to meet their hydration needs. What tips would you give them to help them with those hydration? I think probably the most important thing is have your water bottle with you all the time and don't carry one of those big, heavy glass one-litre bottles because they're not user-friendly. I encourage clients to carry a six, five or 600 mil um, insulated um, bottle if possible because the cold water seems to go down easier mm-hmm. um, and just sip it at every opportunity. Water has um, quite a firm surface tension, so the addition of something into water, it might be a hydrolyte tablet or um, some lemon or lime or a protein-based water used as a cordial, those sort of things will help break the surface tension and water then can slip down, it slides down a little bit easier. And certainly in the first couple of weeks, people often find popping something in the water a little bit easier. Once people start eating, it's about separation of foods and fluids, so that sort of brings up other the challenges but I think it's really just about finding what works for you and constantly sipping so if I'm seeing someone in the rooms and they come in and without a water bottle I'm saying where's your water bottle you need to have it with you because the opportunity of sitting in a waiting room waiting for a consult um, is a terrific opportunity to sip some more and again that's part of the pre-surgery workup that I might encourage someone who's not a big drinker to get in the habit of taking a water bottle and slow sipping so that they can get used to um, having that water bottle and sipping over the course of the day. I think that's something that we should stress is that, once again, that pre-surgery workup, how important it is and for the journey to prepare the patient. So getting the nutrition correct and, and also going back a few steps, why why do people need to go on a VLCD pre-op? What, what yeah, the, the main um, role of the VLCD is to shrink the liver. So the liver is a large organ. It sits right across the top of the stomach, right where the surgeon needs to operate. And we have, have to actually retract or lift up the liver to do the surgery. And if the liver is a big organ, it hasn't been shrunk, it has a high blood volume, it, it, there is a risk of surgical complications. So it's, the, the liver can bleed. So it's about reducing surgical risk. So the the VLED, which is a low-carb program, will create um, a reduction of glycogen stores within the liver, and that then causes the liver to to contract and become a much easier organ for the surgeon to to retract. Why do you feel patients are reluctant to head down the path of bariatric surgery, especially when most patients post-ops say that they wish they'd done it sooner? Yeah, I, I think... I would like to think that there's a lot more acceptance of bariatric surgery mm. now. Um, I still think there is a bit of a preconceived bias that it's the easy way out, that you're cheating. Um, um, some patients still feel that or they feel judged by others that they're, they're going to take the easy option and have surgery. Um, so that's a big area that we would support a client through and say, look, you know, our, our, my take on it is congratulations for having surgery. You are, you've tried everything. You've really worked hard at trying to manage your weight. And we all know that diets don't work. I mean, if, for the general population, diets have a 3 to 5% success rate long-term. So they really don't work. Um, so if for someone to grasp the bull by the horns and say, that's it, I'm taking charge of my health, I'm going to get healthier, improve my self-esteem, start moving, um, and I'm going down the surgery path, that, that's a big decision. And I think that we need to support people and, and congratulate them for being motivated enough to take the decision to move forward with their health. Some GPs are still not 
that sold on bariatric surgery and unfortunately sometimes that affects their patients as well. Mm. So I think over time, um, you know, with all the work that Formulator doing and 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 um, Ozans and the, the whole peak body is that bariatric surgery is is viewed a lot more positively and hopefully that bias will continue to reduce. How important, in your opinion, is it that the patient's family get on board with their decision? Yeah, it's absolutely vital. Um, as we talked about, that pre and post surgery period are really tricky, and you do need support. Um, and I like to encourage clients to view it as an opportunity for the whole house to become healthier. Mm. Um, so it's a great opportunity for the family to look at starting to prepare meals, cook healthy options, perhaps all sit at the table to eat rather than perhaps sitting in uh, in the lounge in front of TV. To look at um, working out which foods for their household are everyday foods and which foods might be sometimes foods. So things like potato crisps and soft drinks and takeaway food aren't everyday foods. They might appear a lot less often. And certainly for children, it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity to, to learn about um, what healthy eating looks like. So that if the family can come on board, it supports the, the patient, but it also improves the, the health of the family as well. Yeah, that's great to hear. Is there any resource that you would suggest our listeners could use to help them with their own weight loss journey? Well, I know that you produce a really good document with the the clinical protocol. Um, So Formulate has a clinical protocol just for VLED as a separate one for bariatric. So that's got some great ideas on how to use a shake program to get started because someone who's not ready for surgery or perhaps may not have linked in with a team yet if they want a quick kickstart, you know, using a, a shake program is a great way to kickstart. It's quite structured. Um, it lets them uh, follow a program that's nutritionally balanced, meets meets protein and requirements. So that's a great start. The other thing, of course, is linking in with a dietitian because mm. it's not only following a program, but it's the coaching and support. Um, as we know, behaviour change is perhaps one of the key elements of any program success oh, and, and coaching and supporting someone through behavior change um, is one of the key elements of, of lasting success as well you know we've just had seen Ash Barty um, do amazingly well and she's probably got a team of 15 so yes. even champions have a big team and the, the winter olympians I'm sure they all have a big team of physios and dietitians so you know if you if you're looking at making health changes find yourself a team because that supports really one of the keys to success Fantastic. Sally, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. If, if you had one piece for, of advice for someone to become healthier, what would it be? I think it would be just move more. I think with clients, if I get them exercising, and exercising has awful connotations, moving more means put your sandwiches on and get out the front gate, that then tends to precipitate a shift in mindset. And I often say, I don't care how fast you go or how long you go for, just, just start getting up and having a stroll. And, and, and again, multifactorial gets you away from the kitchen. So stroll at the time of day, might be four o'clock or five o'clock when you're prone to snacking. It's a great stress relief. If you've had a really busy day, just get yourself out in nature and try to walk mindfully and, and unclutter your mind. And, and sooner or later with a lot of clients, that develops into something a little bit more and they're maybe tracking steps and setting themselves some gar- targets and goals. And then with that comes that whole feeling of health and well-being and that can then impact upon food choices. So 
we really want to get away from this dieting culture of being on a diet. I think if we start just to move our bodies more in it, and that might be as something like go to a yoga class, do Tai Chi, start kayaking, anything that, that gets you moving can tend to have a carry on and over effect of, of general health and well-being. I know how much better I feel after just going for a walk in the morning. Yep. What a great sets, way to start the day. Sets your day up really well. Yeah. Yep. yeah. We, we really appreciate your time today and sharing your knowledge with our audience, Sally, and thank you so much for appearing on our podcast. Pleasure. Um, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the show. And for further information about weight loss, such as recipes and our range of shakes and other products, please visit the Formulite website. All advice is provided as a general guide only. Please consult your medical professional before starting any weight loss program.